This is a new rite, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. This is Dan Baltic, and unfortunately, Matt is not with us at the moment. He is recovering from undisclosed uh, festivities and merriment, and uh, hopefully he will join us halfway through the pod, but... Um, in any case, we are very happy and um, lucky to uh, be here today with uh, none other than Justin Murphy, Yo. who is the uh, the founder of Other Life, which is not only a community, uh, an online community of scholars and independent researchers, but is also your personal um your personal scholarly brand and writing brand, the name of your podcast, the name of your monthly newsletter. So um, welcome, Justin. Good to have you. What's up, Dan? Thanks for having me. It's not a monthly newsletter, more like weekly, sometimes even, you know, two or three times a week. Occasionally, sometimes it's more like once a week or uh, the past month I, I've taken off completely. I've been on a summer vacation past month, but uh, yeah, a little bit more than we- than than monthly or weekly. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's so, I mean, one of the the reasons why this episode is uh, special to me and why Matt really wishes he could be here, hopefully he'll pop in, is that uh, your uh, intellectual project has been central to, uh, in uh, some respects, uh, my own and new rights, because I met Matt on Indie Thinkers, which was the um, uh, progenitor, if, if I'm right in saying that of other life is uh is that right justin yeah sure it's kind of gone through many evolutions i've had different names for things i've tested out many different things uh but that's right yeah it used to be called indie thinkers because that was kind of the spirit of it's independent writers thinkers you know creators whatever trying to kind of uh connect a bunch of people such as yourselves and yeah you guys meeting and and then going on to build what you've built has been uh, one of the many, you know, success stories I'm very proud of that has kind of emerged from my orbit. So really glad to hear that. Absolutely. And I mean, so just to explain for the audience, in case they don't know, Indie Thinkers um, was and and is uh, in its evolving form under the Other Life, um, you know, banner, uh, a community of scholars, of, you know, people who have independent projects outside of the mainstream, outside of academia, but independent intellectual projects. And this is something that I think um, you you have been at the forefront of identifying a unique need uh, that, that is being underserved in you know the community. 
which is a uh, a kind of vehicle for connecting and working with other scholars, other thinkers, and you know, growing yourself as a thinker outside of the mainstream academia and publishing and you know and entertainment even ecosystem because um you know frankly that world is um just uh, you know too too censorious too stifling i mean we we all know the the story and i mean that's what led me to uh, you know other life indie thinkers was I just, you know, I, I had Nutcranker. I, I had written it. I, you know, and we, we talked about this on your pod. Uh, I, again, thank you for having me on other life um, where we talked about how I had written it and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't get an agent. I didn't really have, I mean, beyond kind of like not being able to advance my art professionally, I didn't have a community to share it with. And that just felt, you know, terrible, frankly. Like, I, I mean, it's 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 one thing to not have, um, you know, professional advancement uh, in terms of your your art or whatever, uh, but in, to not kind of have intellectual community, that's something that, like, I, I think a lot of you know people in our space, um, you know, want and need, and the kind of the the value of it is so obvious to me because immediately upon joining, I connected with Matt. We started talking about Nutcranker and publishing and the entertainment industry. And within a month we had made plans to start new, right? And that was year and a half uh, to actually almost two years ago now. So uh, yeah, that's uh, a a long introduction, (laughs) but uh, Thank you, Justin. Yeah, I love to hear it. Thanks for sharing that story with your audience. I think that independent writers are essentially some of the most powerful people in the world right now in in ways that people still just don't understand. Like our culture is increasingly revolving around the insights of independent thinkers, right? If you look at like how someone like Tucker Carlson sources his content and talking points, he has people full-time like scouring Twitter, right? Looking for the interesting original takes. You go to any social gathering in any big city in America, there's going to be a bunch of people who have a lot of money that, you know, people who, you know, millionaires are a dime a dozen people who have found wealth for themselves. That's actually not that rare or not that hard in, in a way, utmost um, respect for people who've been successful in that way. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it's actually more rare to have truly original independent insight into anything whatsoever. And if you have that, um, it's actually one of the most in-demand things in the world. And people don't realize how insanely valuable, both economically, but also socially and 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 culturally, just simply having a quiet, focused mind, uh, some genuine erudition and uh, original, well-thought-out perspective. Possessing these things is, is, is more rare than possessing a million dollars in a way. And if you have it, um, it is uh, it immediately starts unlocking doors that you would not imagine. And this is one of the things that I see and that I take seriously, I think more than, more than most people. And and I've tried to build my life and, and a, a little business around it, essentially. I'm trying to figure that out. So um, yeah, I think your your story is is a testimony to that. And uh, many, many other people are are finding this in their own way. So, you know, touche to you guys. And what's up, Matt? How you doing? Oh, thank you, Justin. And yes, Matt has joined us. It's uh, good to good to have you on, Matt. 
with with perhaps some audio difficulties here. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna try and call. Okay, yeah, call call it. <laughs> um, all right, yeah, no, so I mean that is a you know a very good kind of uh, summation of um, encapsulation of your mission there, Justin. And I think I mean so when I came across indie thinkers, when I came across other life. This was, uh, I think, to some extent, and you correct me if I'm wrong, tell me to what extent this is true, your project and just generally online scholarship, online kind of communities have been accelerated by this period of uh, forced quarantine <laughs> that we, uh, we all went through. And we uh, we see that that has resulted in like so many, you know, Zoom has become a kind of uh, staple of being part of a corporate structure. And we also see the, the rise of online learning and online, um, you know, uh, communities. So, um, yeah, what what do you think about the extent to which the uh, the pandemic has influenced the, the rise of this? So I think the pandemic was a specific accelerator of something and, and, it, and it did move the needle and pushing forward a bunch of these trends you allude to. But really, the, the much more powerful causal variable here is just the, the absolute degradation of our cultural institutions. It's just, sure. uh, it's, it's been going on for a very long time. The decline has been um, longstanding. If you read someone like Harold Bloom in the 90s, or you listen to some interviews uh, with Harold Bloom, it's some, someone I've been reading a lot lately and taking great inspiration from in recent weeks. He said this all, you know, in the 90s. This is like almost 30 years ago now. Uh, it was pretty clear that our universities and the institutions in our society that are dedicated to the transmission of great knowledge uh, to, you know, passing generations, uh, passing on that torch to the next generation, that, that there has just been an absolute dereliction of, of this responsibility and, and of this of this privilege, really. It's just not happening anymore. And it was it was terminal already in the 90s. And yeah. any, any anyone who could see it and had the courage to simply point out what was happening. And Harold Bloom, the reason I admire him and been paying attention to his his books lately is that he was merciless in, in saying this. He he was absolutely not sentimental. He said it's already over. And this is a this is a someone who is a professor at Yale um, who was within the institution saying plainly it's over and I don't see any way it's going to be safe. This was already in the 90s. Uh, and so we're we're it, it, it's it's. It's um, it's now beyond late stage. It's like not even really questionable anymore. It's just over, and so that's what I think the the big background variable that has to be has to be essentially recognized. And most people just don't want to recognize that. Most people cling to some fantasy of like, oh, you know, but if I could become a professor, then I could do it right. You know, I could yeah. I could fix this, or we could fix this, or whatever. And I'm just like, I try to be utterly unsentimental about it. I think like the instant, the cultural institutions are over completely over. And it's actually an amazing, wonderful thing. It's a, it's a great opportunity. It's fantastic. It, all it means is that uh, creative and intellectual life is now returning where it belongs and where it, where it has been most of its time in, in human history, which is, you know, in the hearts and minds and souls of independent reading and writing, thinking people. Um, that is the, the, the whole, the overwhelming majority of the history 
of of Western intellectual life has been independent people who are just reading, writing, thinking, and publishing their own observations and discoveries. That, that, that has been the lion's share of, of the greatest work that's ever been published in Western civilization. It's only been a relatively small percentage of the time that we've had this, this university formation, this professorial formation has been a very, very small blip uh, in, the, in, the, in the larger history of, of the great works of Western civilization. So all that's happening is this little blip is deflating. It's over finally. And now we're returning to, to the to the tried and true great tradition of the independent thinker and the independent intellectual. And we should be absolutely happy about it. Yeah, 100 percent. The to what extent do you think the um, like the premium on an Ivy League degree or something like that is being lost today? I think in the professional industries, law, medicine, what have you that remains true. But I think culturally, I think, you know, beyond kind of the the industries where there's, you know, to, to you know, some extent to varying degrees, measures of, you know, uh, barriers to entry. It's just, it's simply, you know, when the kind of degradation to the admissions process and to the, and in fact, and, and even more so to the actual education you receive at a place like Harvard is, um, you know, degraded, it becomes, you know, not so much a mark of value and a greater mark of value, frankly, is, you know, like how many people are listening to you, how many people are. And, and that is, you know, that is now uh, obvious. It, it wasn't obvious before you couldn't like 10 or 20 years ago be like, oh, well, uh, how many uh, retweets do you get? How much engagement do you get? But when you have people in like the legacy media or what have you, who are you know, tweeting or writing articles and, and no one's responding to it. It's a mark of, you know, some sort of real uh, moribund, you know, aspect of, you know, the cultural institutions and, um, you know, indeed the kind of the project that you're undertaking to, you know, create and mold independent thinkers, you're, you know, conferring, you're, you know, I think you're guiding them to a path that will lead them to a greater, you know, possibility of contribution and, you know, and a greater, you know, potential power because people will be actually, you know, because they're saying interesting stuff, listening to them, retweeting them. Totally. And Absolutely. And it's actually much larger than that. I, there's a reason why I don't even use the term thinker anymore, which just sounds pretentious. And it actually understates the point. It's actually not about some rarefied, tradition of, you know, the lone genius or the autodidactic, you know, inventor who's like, you know, going to discover something fundamentally original or something like that. It's actually, it's actually more general and more modest in a way. It's, it's more about, it's not about being a thinker or a philosopher so much as it is living one's life authentically and thoughtfully. Uh, you know, if you look at someone like Montaigne, who, who I also have been taking a lot of inspiration from recently, Montaigne essentially invented the essay form. This is in the 16th century. He decided to withdraw from the workaday world just to read, to think, to and and to write essentially. And and in in this absolutely humble, modest withdrawal from society, it's simply seeking to understand what he really believes and to figure out truly what what seems true to him and what really seems valuable and and correct to him in his own heart of hearts. Simply trying to figure that out as one humble human being among others. 
was itself, he didn't know it at the time, but it was itself a kind of uh, revolutionary step forward in the history of the intellectual life. But he wasn't trying to do that. He wasn't trying to be that. It was incredibly modest and simple desire to just understand what he believed and what he thought and and to and to and to live a an examined life. And so I think that this is really important. And so this is why, you know, when I first left academia and kind of set out with this mission, you know, I tested out many different ways of thinking about it and different ways of talking about it. I, I didn't, I'm figuring this out as I go. That's why, like, I originally had this program that I called Indie Thinkers. But the reason I'm, I'm kind of folding, folding uh, that concept or that, that whole brand under just this general kind of like other life brand um, as a kind of mysterious placeholder for all of this is that, you know. I don't describe myself as a philosopher. I don't describe myself as a thinker. I think that's that's just uh, ridiculous, and it, it's it's just, it doesn't it doesn't hit right. It doesn't actually get the point across. I'm just a humble person trying to figure out what is true, and I'm trying to do that at all costs to keep my mind honest, to keep my mind independent and healthy, and to be you know living and breathing in only the finest materials. Uh, out there and in, in the, you know in the in the history of civilization and and it's like that I'm doing that because it's necessary to do that to live a virtuous and complete full life and um yeah so to, in in a way that's part of the the revolution that I think is happening in here it's like uh we're letting go of this kind of rarefied pretentious uh egotistical you know like self-obsessed Na navel gazing institutional tradition uh and, and this is something much larger but your original question i wanted to respond to dan your original question was do these universities still have you know brand premium and i think without a doubt the the elite university brands still do ca carry a premium uh, as as you're right to to note uh, and without a doubt, you know, having a degree from Harvard is going to get you more opportunities than not having a degree um, or or a degree from from a worse university. But that's the opportunities that it will give you and the premium that it will give you is um, it is constrained. It is contingent upon a certain part of the world. It, it only operates within this kind of gate kept sector of of the, of the culture and the economy. So what I mean by that is you can kind of break society into two camps. If you want to, uh, I, I would argue this is very useful to do conceptually. If you think of, you know, half of the economy and the culture in America as the gate kept wing, and then the outside, I sometimes call it just everything outside the institutions or that which is not gate kept, which essentially boils down to entrepreneurship of one kind or another. So you're mm -hmm. either playing within some kind of bureaucratic institutional game where there are specific individuals with titles whose job it is to say yes or no to who advances and who gets more money and who gets power. That's the gatekept world. I sometimes just call it the institutions. And then there's everything that's outside of that, which essentially boils down to the marketplace, just finding a way to make a little bit more money than you spend uh, through whatever creative um, you know, ventures, whether that's software or content, or there's so many different ways to hack it nowadays. Um, you can basically break up the entire culture and economy into these two buckets. And the brand premium that universities still have, which is real, only applies to the gate kept part and it's very real in that gate kept part without a doubt um but outside of that gate kept part it means almost nothing and in the, and and i would contend that all of the action all of history's uh, moving energy is going into the direction of the outside if you think about it right who's Absolutely. getting rich in interesting ways who's making an impact on millions of other people's minds where is all of the new interesting high power high octane 
energy economically, culturally, and socially, it's obviously more and more all on the outside of these, of these gate kept institutions. And so if you're a young person and you're, and you know, you want to read great book, you want to read great books. You want to think what's true. You want to think at the highest level of your abilities. You want to come up with projects and uh, build a path for yourself in your, in your adult life. Um, you know, in, in the most impactful and significant, dynamic, free and and um, meaningful, relevant way suited to your moment in history. It's obvious to me, it's beyond obvious at this point that you need to go on the outside, you need to bet yourself on the outside. And um, that's, that's the real, like, that's where the discrepancy is, is hard to argue with. So it's not a matter of the universities don't matter whatsoever anymore. They do matter within a particular circumscribed domain of institutional bureaucratic society. But does anyone want to play that game anymore if you had a choice? No, that's what's going down yeah. the tubes. And that's my, that's my model for it. I think it's very interesting to dig into the value of networks here because the value of networks in connection with, you know, a, an Ivy League institution, what have you, is a very, as you know, a very traditional, um, you know, networking within a specific industry, stuff of that nature. But if you're talking about the cultural in industry, uh, which is a silly word, well, if you're talking about culture, you know, if you're talking about contributions to real scholarship or or art, I think that we we would probably agree that the you know the academic pedigree is becoming uh, less and less important. And as you just said, a lot of the like the real work of art and scholarship is taking place outside of the system. That being said networks are still important. Networks are still valuable. So I, as I was discussing earlier, I wrote Nutcranker in a vacuum, just sharing it with like an old college friend. And I didn't have anyone to share it with. I didn't have any, I didn't have any idea how am I going to get people to read this? The, you know, mainstream cultural industry is dead. How am I going to, you know, get this out there? And so there is a value in creating networks outside of the mainstream culture, because then you can plug into that. And yes, you know, the, you know, networking and, and networks are a kind of, in, in a way, um, you know, uh, it, it's not exactly a sexy phrase or a sexy way of thinking about things, but they are valuable. And, you know, even outside, you know, if you have something that's like a great, work of art or a great contribution to the culture, but you don't know anyone, no one's going to read it. No one's going to find out about it. So, I mean, what, what do you think about the, I guess, the emerging marketplace, the emerging need for a sort of network structure outside of academia, outside of the culture industry? Yeah, I completely agree with you that some network structure is what replaces the kind of institutional network structure. I just think that it's quite organic and it's it's much less you know, uh it's it's much less of a planable thing than people often think. I think this is the common misconception. People get I think a little carried away sometimes when they start sure. thinking about how they're going to mastermind the great counter network. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of this kind of thinking and and discourse and um I think that that often it, it almost is doomed to fail because it 
it just gets a lot wrong and it, it makes some some wrong assumptions. Often the most powerful networks are those that are based on the most organic, genuine, uh, kind of enthusiastic uh, networks of passion and 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 genuine enthusiasm, right? So it's like um, if your if your goal is to build some counter network that's going to replace the institutions, and this a lot of people like to talk like this, that often falls flat because it doesn't actually have the the defining characteristic of actually successful emergent networks which is organic, uh, organic, just enthusiasm and energy. No one gets organically uh, energized around some like vision of building a systematic alternative network like that, that, that doesn't excite anyone. That's not an organic shared uh, motivation. Um, it's, it's a, it's a very kind of Machiavellian, cold, analytical, you know, rationalistic, like power dream, you know, like no one actually unites around that organically on a day-to-day basis. Um, that's the error that I think a lot of people make. And so that's why like my whole philosophy around this and, and trying to build this type of network, I never talk about, I, I don't, I, it's never part of the explicit thing. I'm not like, you know, selling anyone some like power dream, like, oh, we're going to build the counter network. I never talk like that. I never, you know, uh, that, that's not how I see it. It's, it's uh, rather the way I do see it is, um, you know, I try to find people who have a true independent spirit where I look at their work and I'm like, oh, this person genuinely interests me. Like that's the only thing that matters. That's the only thing that counts is genuine signal that's genuinely intriguing and curious and and motivating my my further interest. Because if I can find that anywhere, like in you know, hidden somewhere on the internet or whatever, um, I want to just connect those people. I want to connect with those people, and then I want those people to connect with each other. Um, because that's where like you get readers and writers who really genuinely don't care about their audience size. They don't care about money or fame or power. They literally just have a calling to produce a meaningful vision that they feel called to produce. And they're doing it for real and they're putting in the work. You connect those people with a few other people who are literally doing the same and they're not looking for anything else. That's the hardest thing to find. That's the heart that, you know, and if those people can actually share their work, and find, oh, wow, I like this person's work. I'm actually learning something from following this other random person who I've never heard of, who doesn't have clout, is not famous, he's not cool for some external reason, it's not fashionable, just I see in this other random independent person's work, I see something true, I see something real, I see something inspiring, and it's genuine and organic, that's the that's the power, that's the magic, that's that's the, the, the only legitimate uh, social, cultural, thing that you can actually uh, bootstrap uh, a, a network around uh, because that's the real deal. And so I'm always laser focused on on that. I'm just looking for people who are the real deal. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're the best or the greatest or even good at all. But there's something that it's the authenticity and that that kind of real vocation, that real calling and the ability, the basic ability to, you know, put in the work and to show up consistently um, and to and to just, you know, be a part of it, be be involved with others, you know, look at look at others work and and be, you know, kind of friendly and like interest, at least open and interested to other people trying to do the same. That's my whole philosophy of network building and and the, the actual my model for like what it means to build a, a genuine, meaningful kind of cultural community. Absolutely. It um, I mean, it reminds me of when I, you know, was, had just joined other life indie thinkers and there was a, uh, a fiction writing workshop that you, you had uh, just started at that point about two years ago, very early days. But I remember, you know, being excited to kind of show up for it. 
And, you know, that type of energy of, you know, being with people who are excited about doing this stuff that you're doing, excited about the same thing, that is, you know, that's something that is hard to find today in this kind of um, deracinated society. (laughs) Yeah, well, we have this massive, we have this massive problem right now, which is that it is now possible to become kind of famous and make kind of a lot of money through publishing words on the internet. And there's now dozens and dozens of people who have done this very shamelessly, like people who are just not very interesting, not very thoughtful writers, but who are, you know, they've built a newsletter to a hundred thousand followers or, and and they have, yeah. you know, they're making great money with ads and they have a podcast as well. And it's like, these people are kind of a very early form of, I mean, they, they are publishing words and that is their, their, the thing that they're essentially selling. So because it is possible to get famous and rich from producing words on the internet, that's been actually a, a really uh, difficult thing. That's been a, almost a bad thing in a way because people look at that and they think like, that's what it means to be a writer. or That's what it means to be a thinker. And I'm not even throwing shade on those people. That's fine. That's a fine hustle. It's just, um, that's a very different tradition. That's a very different type of work. It's a, it's just not the same thing as uh, people who are, you know, kind of called to participate in in the great conversation of Western civilization at, at a higher level. And so uh, in a way, the, the, the new era of independent writers becoming quite economically viable in a way it's, it's more confusing than anything. And it, it actually, actually has been counterproductive in many ways because people start thinking, Oh, I have to grow my audience super fast, or I have to, I have to, I have to type, type out tweets in these formulas that are viral. You know, it's like a lot of it is getting really, really over overheated and really cringe and, and shameless. Um, so in a way I, I, you know, that's as much a problem as anything. Um, so I, I'm interested in private community because I think it's the only way to actually sustain longer term or more original high value work. Um, cause if, if, if you're, if your only sense of social reality as a writer is like the likes and the retweets you're getting on Twitter. Well, it's easy to see. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just easy to see that if that's all you have, if that's your center of gravity as a social creature, then you're going to go further and further down, uh, like the deep end of like really pretty Andrew. chintzy, really pretty chintzy formulaic, uh, relatively meaningless stuff. Um, it can be fun and it can be, and people can do that. Well, I'm not saying, you know, you can build a massive audience and also be a smart, cool, interesting person but you need something else to get you to do the long form work, the patient, the reading, the, the, the patient reading and writing at a more ambitious level um, to sustain that psychologically. You need to have some other people who have the same goals, who have the same values, who you're talking with and sharing work with on a regular basis. And that's the value add that a strong private community um, brings to the table that like social media can't bring right now, I think. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and would this be a good time to talk a little bit about uh, base delays? Absolutely, Matt. Let's let's get into yeah, it. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, okay, you guys can hear me okay now, right? Yeah, yeah. I hear you. Okay, good. Um, first of all, I'm sure Dan explained to you, Justin. I, I ended up going to Curtis Yarvin's birthday party last night, <laughs> very last minute. So that is why I was late, and why I may have to leave a little bit early, and why I'm like a little bit of a mess coming into this, but I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, I hope I'm not throwing too much of a wrench into your guys' conversation. I was mostly just listening, but I did want to participate, um, you know, a little bit. Um, and, you know, a couple of things, first of all, because I was at this party, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff's resonating even more, you know, hanging out with lots of urban people and, um, you know, sub stack writers. Um, so, so a lot of it is really resonating. 
Um, and I, I really like what you said earlier about um, how, you know, you're kind of moving away from the thinker sort of label because that puts up a divide between like the thinker philosopher community and, and like the general public. I, I kind of dig that, you know, you're trying to break that down uh, a little bit because that's kind of one of the problems with like ivory tower academia in the first place, right? Is that it's, it becomes too insular and then it loses track of, um, the sort of existential reasons why people think and do philosophy and engage in, you know, alternative ways of, of thinking about things and practices in the first place. Um, with regard to that and, um, you know, the existential end of things, um, I, I just wanted to say, uh, reading Base the Luz a few years ago, like right before we started this podcast, was a really huge influence on the way I think about a lot of this stuff. Um, specifically, I think it's chapter five um about uh nietzsche and uh, nietzsche's idea of the eternal recurrence of the same and deleuze's reading on that uh as a way of grounding commitment so i wondered if you wanted to unpack that section a little bit yeah sure i can talk to that so i mean a lot of nietzsche scholars would not really like my interpretation here it, it is somewhat self-consciously you know uh, a, a sort of it's sort of tendentious. It's sort of a provocative, uh, personal, personal misreading, if you will. I, I take my liberties here, but I do think that uh, it is a defensible way to read Nietzsche somewhat provocatively. And it, the story would go something like this. So a lot of people read the typical scholarly way to read Nietzsche around, you know, what he says when it comes to the eternal recurrence is one of his famous ideas. Uh, I'll, I'll give you kind of the the super simple, mm-hmm. like cartoonish recap. I, I mean, he basically says that one should imagine one's life, everything that one has gone through in one's life, one should imagine it playing over and over again, that that everything you've been through will continue to happen forever. And, and that one should be um, content with this, essentially, it's people read yeah. it in different ways, there, there are different schools of thought about what exactly he's trying to say or do with that. I subscribe to mm-hmm. as far as like known scholarly ways of interpreting it, the school of thought I subscribe to would be that yeah, I see it as a kind of as a kind of ethical device, a kind of ethical um, a thought experiment, a way of checking in on oneself regularly to uh, to 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 check that one has um, a healthy and strong uh, attitude, and and that and that one is refusing a spirit of resentment, and that one one in fact has a, a correctly attuned relationship to the world. If you can at all times affirm everything as uh, potentially repeating in, into the future. Uh, ad infinitum. If you can affirm that in sincerity, then you are a strong, healthy soul is, is how I, is how I kind of read that. And, and other people have read yeah, that, like that. Uh, in, in a similar way. What I talk about in the book that is a little bit more idiosyncratic that, you know, some Nietzsche scholars would, would, would take issue with is that, you know, a lot of people read Nietzsche as this kind of proponent of a sort of naive liberal freedom uh, is kind of Definitely. like, you know, yeah. the, Nietzsche, the Nietzschean Ubermensch is allowed to do whatever he wants. He can kind of live whimsically, you know, if he wants to, you know, have one girlfriend today, he can have one girlfriend today. And yeah. then a few, a few months later, if he wants to take a, another girlfriend, that is the prerogative of the Nietzschean Ubermensch, who is not constrained yeah. by, relig- by religion and traditional <laughs> strictures, right? That this is one kind of naive liberal, you know, kind of, uh, perception of, of, of Nietzsche's kind of, uh, ethical spirit. Um, and I read, I read Nietzsche very differently, you know, through Deleuze. I, I think that Nietzsche is actually 
is you know this idea of the eternal recurrence and and what I talk about in the book as 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 uh, the dice throw. There's some interesting lines in Nietzsche yeah. about about the throwing of the dice. Like the throwing of the dice, people often interpret in this way. Like you know, you should let randomness rule, and you you can always throw the dice again. And uh, if that says you should go a different direction, just go a different direction. You know, you're not constrained to the past. Uh, live freely in this kind of like liberal Ubermensch vision, right? Um, but I say yeah. no. The dice, the dice throw. This concept of the dice throw. This concept of the eternal return in Nietzsche. These are actually the the real spirit of that is that one is always constrained by the last throw of the dice and the challenge the challenge yeah. is to the challenge is to live moving forward with a fidelity to the to the last roll of the dice so the emphasis is not on you know the 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 whimsical liberal you know creativity of the ubermensch you know throwing the dice as many times as he wants no it's rather the emphasis is on 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 having the strength to be faithful to whatever the last roll of the dice was um and and people don't like this because it's it's it, this is seen as a kind of well it just feel it's a very different feeling right that's a much more conservative uh feeling that's a, about loyalty and faithfulness and um kind of obedience to the past in a way and then a lot of people mm-hmm. don't like that because they see that as like the opposite of what Nietzsche was trying to say but but I I actually think you know there there's a way to read Nietzsche consistently and a way to read Dilla's consistently where they actually are this is actually um, what what they think and what they want, and, we're, we're, and it's at least one way to read them, and that's how that's that's what I took from Nietzsche and from Deleuze in, in that yeah. point. No, no, I liked it a lot. Again, yeah, I'd been reading Nietzsche for years before reading your book, but I'd never come across something that was in quite that. I guess you could call it conservative vein, but um, but but nevertheless, that sort of gives grounding uh, to to wanting to. To, to live a, a life that really builds up, um, you know, you know, that, that is not that, you know, kind of gross liberal interpretation of Nietzsche as like, you know, do whatever you want, man. Um, I, I, the way I read it is kind of like a call to throw yourself into things. You know, if, if you have something that is in your life, whether it's a birth circumstance or, or a relationship, um, the, the call, you know, it's not a guarantee that every, you know, that nothing will change that you're only gonna be with one person forever or anything but it's kind of a, a call to radical existential creativity um, to to throw yourself in as much as you can, you know? And then if it, if it doesn't work for some reason, well, at least you tried. And I, I think there, there still is that Nietzschean boldness and fieriness to that uh, without it being some dumb, like, um, you know, rock and roll heroin, you know, type of thing uh, yeah. where it's like, you know, do whatever you want. Um, no, I just really, I mostly just want to comment. Like I, 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 you know, I, I guess, I guess, I guess it's not, I'm sure there's other people who've said similar things about Nietzsche. Obviously the whole like notion of existentialism often does have to do with a lot of, a, a lot with responsibility and taking responsibility for your life to the fullest extent. But, but a lot of people, you know, misread Nietzsche, as you said. So it was definitely one of the best distillations of that, that I'd ever come across. And I think, um, I think you also say this in the book, it's especially useful, you know, following, you know, the death of God as Nietzsche would call it, or, or, you know, just postmodern postmodernism, the postmodern condition, this condition we're all in where we're, you know, uh, whether it's because we're like mixed race or from, you know, different religious traditions, like it's not, we're not always grounded in that tradition that's going to tell us what to do. So in order to get the benefit of, of being grounded, you have to engage in this kind of existential creativity. Um, because we no longer, because it's postmodernism, because there's so many different voices telling you what to value, 
um, you have to, as Nietzsche would tell us, you have to decide upon those values for yourself. And how do we do that through this eternal recurrence of the same, this affirmation of both chance and necessity? Um, I think it's a really great installation. Yeah, that's well put. I think it's a, it's a very important point. It's a very fine point. It, it's lost on most people, but it's it, this is the difference between having a successful, uh, virtuous, powerful life and having like a literally a failed, sad, resentful life. I mean, it, it really it really does come down to that. It's like you you need to get these questions right for yourself. It's 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 a matter of life or death, really, to get these types of questions right for yourself. And a naive a naive misreading of someone like Nietzsche, if you take that really seriously. Um, you will screw, you will screw up your whole life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, and again, I think this is also testament to what you were talking about earlier, you know, engaging with these thinkers, not because it's like, oh, I'm so smart. I'm doing philosophy, but rather because as you said, these are grave existential matters of life and death. Um, and I, it is stuff that not just academics should be engaging with. It's, it's a profound way to think about, to think about your life, especially given, um, you know, postmodern conditions, shall we say. Um, and the, the other part of Basilea that I wanted to highlight uh, was chapter nine, Deleuze Petersonianism, where you talk about Jordan Peterson and Deleuze. And, but not even, I don't even want to talk about Peterson so much as this notion of um, uh, kind of memeing your own audience into existence. And I think mm. you and Dan may have been talking a little bit about this before I got on, but um, also very profound effect on me, uh, especially in, with regard to like online um, you know, activity and such. But I, I feel like it's related to that Nietzsche idea of affirming necessity as well. Uh, it's like you just, it, it's a way of being true to yourself, um, you know, to, to, to really say what you want to say and, and um, you know, define, well, I'll just, as you put it, you know, if there exists a true claim for which no audience yet exists, develop the claim until you produce its audience. I mean, I think that's, such a great sort of rallying cry for for those of us who are engaged in this kind of thing podcasting writing online etc yeah no i'm glad you appreciated that that's very nice to hear and yeah i mean i think that basically um yeah like all of the great artists thinkers writers whatever you want to call them have started with the vision that they have in their own mind they feel that they need to bring it into being and usually Typically, at the beginning, there is not a known audience for it. There's not like some constituency that is immediately eating it up. You know, uh, that's it's incredibly rare that that's ever the case with with great works, um, whether it's in philosophy or art or science. Um, and and so it's really important for how we think about culture and how we think about our own cultural projects, um, as you said, for especially independent writers and and creators or whatever you want to call these types of people that we are, um, yeah. you know. If you if your goal is to build an audience, you can, you know, hit Twitter and play some certain playbooks and write some certain formulaic tweets a few times a day. And like you can get it, you can grow an audience uh, relatively quickly following certain formulas. Um, but there are now thousands, like many thousands of people doing that. There's now many thousands of people with like, you know, more than 100,000 Twitter followers who are kind of like chilling like philosophy inspirational philosophy or culture type lessons and stuff like that so like you can do that if you want to um but are you going to actually are you going to actualize an original artistic or intellectual vision almost certainly not right it's just a different thing it's a totally different thing i'm not even throwing shade on those people and so 
the question then becomes, if you really do have a calling to, to actualize a unique, uh, more elevated vision that participates in the great conversation of Western civilization, if that is who you are, and you don't have to be many, very few people are, it's a, it's a relatively small minority of the, a very small minority of the population really. But if you are in that category, you need different ways of thinking. You need the correct ways of thinking. You need to know um, how to think about that, or you're never going to even be able to take a shot at it really. And this is, I think, one of the most important high leverage mental models or frameworks for this type of person, which is lost on most people, which is what you just said, essentially, that um, you have to see yourself as producing the audience that you want rather than yeah. rather than creating content for some existing audience. Um, and it's a very different thing. It's a very hard. It's much harder. It takes longer. It takes much more time. It takes much more kind of resolve and sophistication and patience. Um, but that is the task before you if you want to participate in the great conversation. And I'm not saying I'm I'm not saying I'm, you know, I've I've successfully risen to this challenge or anything like that. I would I would never claim that, but I but I do, you know, I, I do that is how I see my goals, you know, and I think that's how we should all uh have the courage to um, you know, see our see our goals in that way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just for people who haven't read the book, you know, the the to unpack this a bit. The examples you give in the book are Jordan Peterson, who sort of had a unique um, take on psychology uh, and sort of developed that for years before hitting it off with a big audience. But then also another another archetypal example that you cite would be Franz Kafka, you know, not being properly German or I don't remember, I don't have the quote in front of me, but, you know, he I think I think Deleuze wrote about Kafka, you That's know, right. he, he essentially produced his own his own audience, you know, not he wasn't really fully Jewish, wasn't really fully German and his genre, you know, he essentially, I, I'm probably incorrect about this, but he, he basically invented a genre of surrealism, right. That we now all know and love. Um, but, you know, he essentially created that his own audience. The Kafka bit is uh, from Deleuze. I'm I'm no Kafka specialist myself, but I mentioned Kafka as cited or as quoted by Deleuze as an example of this. But I think it's easy to find other examples. Yeah, I think Peter, G, Jordan Peterson is an interesting example because he's 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 contemporary. You know, it's very easy to hate on Jordan Peterson. It's you know uh, very tempting. You know, now that he's so massive, he's he's really stratospheric. It's it's easy to kind of say. Uh, Oh yeah, you know, he's uh he's he's now he's writing this kind of schlocky self-help stuff. He's lame. Like people this is kind of like a popular way to think about Jordan Peterson if you're, you know, from a more sophisticated audience. Um but I think I think that's actually quite wrong. I think Jordan Peterson is actually still underrated as as an intellectual in in a way. Yeah, I think no, what, I, really what, I think what he's done, what his life, his career I think is just so stupendous um and so interesting and and uh really remarkable kind of paradigmatic case study of you know the the changing tides of of public intellectual life today just because and the, and the thing i talk about in the book that you're alluding to is that you know he was publishing his lectures on youtube for many years way before anyone cared way before there was any kind of uh template really for a a academic professor to have this kind of stratospheric rise um and so he was clearly doing it out of his own calling he he wasn't you know his 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 calling to post his content on youtube consistently um 
was not a bit, it was not some kind of like play for international stardom. He never could have imagined it. Right. Um, he never would have done it for that reason, uh, because he, you know, statistically it would have been so unthinkable. Um, but rather he just believed enough in his own, you know, independent, you know, reflections, his observations on social science and psychology that deviated from the institutional playbook that his ideas and his perspective, which was not rewarded by the the tracks of the, the, the professorial career that he was embedded in. He nonetheless believed in his own unique observations enough to cultivate them and to put them online just because he felt called to put them online. And he produced an audience that was not already there. And that's one of the true marks of, of, of the really great thinkers, I believe. Um, and I think he will be remembered more favorably, even in the long term, in the, in the long term of the canon. I think I think he's he's much yeah. more sophisticated and impressive than uh, people are inclined to, to give him credit for right now. Absolutely. Yeah. To uh, what extent do you think I, in one of your recent podcast episodes of Other Life, you discuss, as we've just discussed previously the uh, notion that you um, if you're writing for an audience um, not necessarily just you know writing for any audience but if you're writing in a, a sort of more pandering way on Twitter what what have you uh, to kind of satiate the needs of a specific audience you uh, you are probably not going to produce work that is as good as if you're writing for yourself. And I mean, I, I think to a certain extent, based on us, I mean, this uh, was, you know, something that there, as we're talking about, there was not an audience for it, you created an audience for it. And many of us are kind of creating our own audiences for our respective, you know, works of art or respective, uh, you know, writing projects. But there, there is a certain paradox, at least I find, in that if you are, um, you know, writing, yes, you do not want to be pandering to the needs of the crowd, the wants of the crowd. But you do, I mean, at least for me, maybe some people truly write for themselves, but you do have to have someone in mind or some some type of, you know, friend or so I, I in like a recent and, you know, this is you know, perhaps a, a revealing example, but in a recent tweet, I, I said something to the effect of I, I don't write for in my readership. I don't write for myself. I write for my most honest, most insane friend. And what do you think about that? The idea that you have to, as a writer, have a certain kind of North Star to whom you are addressing your ideas. I think this is a great question. It's a really important question. And I've written before recently, as you alluded to, that you should generally write for yourself and yourself alone. There's a good case to be made that a lot of the, perhaps most of the, the truly great writers in the past had essentially this kind of mentality. But you're right. You point to an important paradox. It's confusing because um, if you actually write in your notepad or wherever you write, and you're literally just writing what feels fun to you in that moment or something like that. Um, that, that is not really the, the right way of understanding it. That, that, that's as uh, loaded with possible false paths as, as, as anything, right. You can be, you can go off into this kind of like absurd navel gazing kind of like self, you know, masturbatory, masturbatory uh, kind of failure mode. Right. And so you point out correctly that on some level, you know, you have to have some seriousness about, 
producing work that is um, interesting or enjoyable to other people on some, it has to connect with other people on some level, obviously. Right. And so there is, there is a seeming kind of question around that. Um, and I think that, I think your um, solution to it is, is a beautiful, you know, solution to this paradox, but I would say a different one, uh, which I've thought a lot about, which is simply this, that when I say write for yourself and yourself alone, I'm not saying write to, to, to get your jollies off as you're doing the writing for your own like self-amusement. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is write for yourself and yourself alone, but as if you were the reader. So mm -hmm. you're writing for yourself as the reader. And that's totally different than writing for yourself as the writer. Um, and so what I mean by that is you want to produce products that are enjoyable, that are readable, that are um, fun, that are have these different types of properties that are in fact, you know, um, uh, the things that make work resonate with other people. The point is just you should be the person that is um, the the target market, essentially. So, so you are writing for a market and you are paying attention to things like, is this enjoyable? Is this readable? Is this going to resonate uh, in a way that's edifying or satisfying or funny or or exciting or whatever? These, these tones, these notes you want to hit that make work resonate with human beings you still want to do that. You are writing for a target market, but the target market should be you as a reader. And that's the key distinction. Absolutely. And perhaps to an extent, your close intellectual peers. So for instance, if you belong to other life or some other community, you, you may, you know, have a friend, a, you know, someone who you have in mind when you're writing something. But that's a very different thing than having in mind the kind of like, you know, your your followers on Twitter, the general like, you know, writing, reading marketplace or, yes. or something more business yeah. minded. I like your twist when you say you're writing for your most insane and honest friend. <laughs> um, or you could also say your most insane and honest version of yourself. It would be the same thing, essentially, right? Um, and, and I like that because, you know, when I say write for yourself and yourself alone, but we understand that correctly as, you know, yourself as a reader, like, what do you want to read as a reader, write that, um, you might just add to that, the qualification that, um, in your highest self, your highest version of yourself, you know, not your lowest version of yourself or, or even your average day-to-day -day version of yourself, but, you know, write for yourself as a reader in your highest form possible, whether that's like your most honest or your most uh, courageous or most insane, as, as you say, um, yeah, you, you, you know, bring something into the world that your honest self would say, this is amazing. Absolutely. Do we want to get into, to an extent, I, um, I mean, as someone who is, you know, very online, we all are, um, you know, I, I tweet a lot. I do think, I do wonder, you know, to what extent, I mean, I know that I am writing on Twitter, writing for an audience, writing for my, you know, followers, but I, I wonder to what extent the, you know, needs of, I mean, you know, even to kind of nail, you know, drill down specifically on Twitter, this kind of like short attention span medium, 
I find myself almost like thinking in aphorisms after like a year and a half on Twitter. And I think, you know, not to kind of toot my own horn, but I think I've gotten pretty, and we discussed this on our pod, I've gotten, you know, pretty good at Twitter. I've gotten pretty good at kind of like thinking and writing this way. But I do wonder about its effect on my overall uh, intelligence and like creative capacity. And I, I feel the internet and not just, you know, not just Twitter, but all social media is training us to be in this kind of, you know, intensely responsive uh, manner to not just, you know, criticism or anything, but just like in general, where yeah. we're trying to, uh, we're, we're always broadcasting we're always performing so i've thought about this a lot and the other life course that we run uh multiple times throughout the year now which is i alluded to it before it's basically just like you know a crash course in reading and writing for the 21st century you know citizen of the internet w w the way that i have solved this problem because you're absolutely right it's a, it's a problem is is the following so first of all it's important to realize it it something like twitter and social media is for writers an incredible gift on on one level sure. you have to just yeah. you have to kind of be awe inspired by the gift that you know anyone can write a 280 character message and twitter will go and show it to other people who have never heard of you before for you um and if it's interesting and if it resonates with people it can you know be seen by many thousands or even millions of people uh with some amount of regularity actually uh for free you know you, this is just at your fingertips as a writer if you're a writer and you're interested in developing ideas and sharing your ideas with the world if this doesn't just excite you then you're you're you know you're probably resentful or something or you're confused or, or whatever like the first step is like you do have to be awe-inspired by this and see, and appreciate how amazing and lucky it we are like it's an amazing it's one it's the most amazing time ever to be a writer because you can write short simple things and it will get shown to lots of people quickly and and free in a way that's free for you right so that's the first thing is to appreciate that and take that seriously but the second thing is um you're right if you if you do that too much and you fall in love with that exactly that that thing precisely you will quickly your mind will be destroyed i mean you you can find many people who have fallen prey to this like they um their ability to think and say and produce anything other than like 280 character quips is uh destroyed so that's a real failure mode which you also have to you have to look at that with awe as well and and take that very seriously because because it can happen as, as you're alluding to but there's a, a simple solution to this which we've kind of converged on through much experimentation in, in the course that we do which is this you know um you write you read and you write in your notebook however you'd like to do it whether it's by paper or in your writing app or whatever you do all of that privately and separately from posting it's a, it's a separate, these are two different activities, essentially. The reading and the thinking and the writing is one sacred, original, creative, private mm -hmm. activity that you're doing some amount of time every single day, ideally, uh, mm -hmm. at least an hour a day for, for most people I recommend. Um, that's completely separate. That's original. That's unconditioned. That's you finding your own voice, making progress on your own kind of research agenda. Then just you're periodically also probably once a day or a few times a week, you're just taking some of that and you're sharing it with the world in these in these short quips because it is just an amazingly powerful and valuable opportunity that we have to just share little bits of our perspective out with the world at scale. Um, so the key thing is to see these as two different activities, essentially. Um, and when if as long as you can keep that kind of, you see these as two, the thinking, the reading, the thinking, and the writing is one activity, 
with its own dignity and its own its own kind of attitude and and frame of mind. And then the you know going onto Twitter and posting and sharing with the world that's a separate activity. That that's the key thing that will prevent you from getting like you know your your brain kind of Twitter poisoned um, because you're not you're not allowing any uh semblance of the absurdly mistaken notion that when you log on to twitter and you're shooting from the hip and you're playing this like game that's like very conditioned by the ui designers that's literally designed to kind of uh make you addicted to make you pulled into these social opinion status games like you you have under you have absolutely no illusion you should never have any illusion that when you log on to twitter.com that you're doing something called like thinking or writing, you know, maybe if you're, if you're really skillful, maybe sometimes you are, and and there's a certain way, you know, some, some extreme, you know, uh, Twitter people have a, probably, you know, uh, access to certain art form of doing that. I would grant that I would give that. Um, but um, even those people are kind of sacrificing themselves on, on the altar of this particular platform. And that's not, that's not a, that's not a bet I would want to make personally as a, as a writer for the longer term. Um, and the other key thing, the other reason this is a really good and valuable like framework is um, all of the stuff that you're writing in your notebook can accumulate into longer form things. And this, this is crucial, right? So it's like, um, there's, you should absolutely learn the art of the tweet, the art of the short form ap- aphorism, the art of the, of the quip. These are actually tried and true genres, right? I mean, it, uh, people have been writing aphorisms forever. Um, there is a, a, a longstanding uh, tradition of 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 the aphorism, which you should be absolutely proud to participate in, um, and you should see it with that kind of elevated perspective. Uh, you just, you know, that fits like a glove. That's what Twitter is essentially. So there's nothing wrong with learning the art of the aphorism, which is strongly rewarded today with these algorithmic platforms. Play that game, you know, have fun with that. But you're at all times knowing that that ap- those aphorisms you're writing are going to compile into larger essays. They're going to compile into newsletters. They're going to compile into books. One day, you, and it's it's a matter of keeping that longer term uh, mentality and that sacred kind of time each day where you're doing just original writing. Um, yes, you're chunking it off into quips and tweets and things like that, but you're watching it all accumulate and grow in this dedicated, cultivated personal space. And that's that's the key thing that most people don't do. People who try to be writers on Twitter, people generally don't do this. So. Um, that's why, that's why a lot of the, 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 their work is not going to accumulate into anything larger. Um, and, and that's how I think about it. Absolutely. It, um, it occurs to me that one of your more recent, um, you, you've had a, a kind of writing module on your, uh, on other life, um, and which I have indeed participated in discussing John Kennedy tool, but one of your more recent episodes on Ezra Pound, you discussed how Pound kind of, um, I mean, it's not exactly that his thinking was shaped by Twitter or kind of, you know, uh, you know, kind of a hyper psychologically conditioned manner to respond to an audience, but a, a desire or a need to kind of mastermind one's own intellectual career and um, you know, master the the you know, social algorithm to get one's writing across. And I mean, to what extent do you think that is an uh, an issue for a scholar or or a writer? Uh, I think it's a huge issue, really. How many times do you go to a party and it's like you know, cool independent writers, dissidents, you know, people who self styled 
you know, uh, you know, counterculture revolutionaries, you know, I, I, I hang with like a lot of people on different events and I, I get to meet with a lot of people who are, you know, really smart, interesting, independent people kind of in, you know, these, these different kind of online anti-institutional kind of scenes that are emerging. But how many times when you go to this type of thing, how many times are people essentially talking about really relatively trite, like social media gossip? You know what I mean? It's beneath yeah. us. It's beneath us, but it's 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 a really strong pull. It's a really really strong kind of gravitational force to get um kind of uh contained. It's like we've all escaped to the outside. We're free. And then we're immediately being kind of recuperated by like the most trite kind of everyday like socio-psychological um, domesticating mechanisms. You know what I mean? I find that I find this to be like really kind of sad and horrifying. And so to me, you know, um, reading great works and studying great works and just basically keeping your mind as socially unconditioned as possible, just not paying attention to the Twitter controversies, the, the topics of the day, the discourse of the day, um, whoever's like, you know, most fashionable or popular in the moment or whatever you, you really, I think you really want to try your best to just not pay attention to such things and to not even know what such things are. I think it's actually really important because, you know, in this independent, this new world of independence, you know, it, it, it's a great gift, but it's also the, the, the risks and the temptations and the, the failure modes are also just voluminous and, and very, very strong. And so it's like, um, to me, this is one of the clearest ones. Like, what is the point? We have this historical opportunity in front of us, people like you and I and people listening to this podcast. We are literally at, at a historical juncture that is one of the most exciting opportunities in the history of Western civilization for true, original, independent thinkers, writers, creators. And there's a risk that you're going to piss away this opportunity. You're going to piss away your life at this remarkable, exciting uh, uh turning point in in the culture there's a risk that you're going to piss away your life because you're paying too much of attention to some particular bullshit social media personality and you're going to you could spend the next 20 years of your life kind of thinking and writing underneath the umbrella of one random midwit in the world in 2023 like that is a risk because there's no one else keeping you on the rails. There's no other structure, right? There's no institution that is going to force you to remember, you know, that Shakespeare is more important than Bronze Age pervert, right? It's like, there's no, there's nothing keeping you on the rails. There's no one who is invested in keeping you prioritized correctly with, with this, with a proper sense of proportion and a proper sense of, of the rank ordering of, of the works, the great works and the great authors and so on. And so, this is, I, I think about this every day. It's like, we have an amazing opportunity to do original, profound work at scale, independently in the world today, more easily than any previous generation ever. And I see a lot of people who are going to piss it away because they're over-indexed to really short-term trends and fads. And um, to me, again, it's a, this is a life or death question. This is getting this right. Um, could, could, uh, produce a completely different life with completely different results than if you get this incorrect. Um, and then that's why I, I, I'm, I, I take this so seriously. And I, and I talk about it with such vehemence. Absolutely. It is a struggle to maintain that sort of focus on an original project 
and the fact that you have an audience it's just you know and it's it's a difficult and narrow road to walk which i think you are kind of helping this you know new generation of uh you know intellectuals um figure out how to how to navigate well i'm trying to figure it out for myself and i'm just teaching what i learn as i go you know so um yeah but again you know i don't even i i i don't describe myself i wouldn't describe myself as an intellectual i think these words are kind of in, unavoidable on on certain you know topics like yeah, yeah you gotta you know there's a certain tradition of of culture um that is specific and uh we only have so many words to try to describe these things but but i'm aware of how how much the, uh people hate this kind of stuff it like triggers people so much and and it's actually really taught me that you know in a way i i also don't love these vocabularies because like we were talking about before you know the scholar the the, the greek term for scholar scholastis scholastes it, it just means someone who lives at ease isn't that interesting that that, that the, the the real ultimate kind of etymological meaning of of scholarship is living at ease, uh, and that's strange. That that's not at all intuitive. That is strange. Most, <laughs> it's not it's not at all intuitive to most people, but it makes perfect sense when you think about it. You know, um, uh, scole, which is the one of the, one of the roots for for school, um, basically means like it means like serious play. So so leisure, basically leisure play and school actually historically are all supposed to be um combined essentially because learning uh true learning is a kind of play it's a serious play uh that that is what like real learning or real school is supposed to be serious play and um so so a the life of a scholar requires leisure um real schooling requires leisure and it is in fact just a kind of cultivated leisure that, that you know um uh that that is essentially what what all of this is at the end of the day so it's not some sort of like rarefied fancy thing like i'm so smart or i'm so special no it's really just there is a specific mode that human beings need to enter into to learn and to understand themselves and to and to make any progress whatsoever on who they are in the world and what they're trying to do in the world and what's real and what's not real uh requires a certain mode of serious play a certain mode of leisure and and cultivated uh kind of focus and reflection on 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 the highest values and the highest questions and the highest works that have come before us um and increasingly i think that this is just going to be it's like this is going to become like basic mental hygiene frankly it's like mm. if you want to think clearly and achieve meaningful things in your world and live uh, you know uh like you're going to have to go through some kind of like mental hygiene camp um, cause the institutions obviously aren't, aren't, aren't providing it anymore. And so it's like, I actually see this as like much more generic and simple and a kind of everyday basic mental need for people more so than some kind of rarefied thing. Absolutely. It, um, I mean, it's, it's not for nothing that I, I, I wrote my, my novel, when I had a downturn in business, had more and, and thus more free time. And it's it's really hard, I find, to focus on creative and, you know, um, intellectual projects when you don't have that time to play, frankly, that time to, because to have, 
you know, an hour or two that you're like very intellectually productive, it's, it's kind of hard to cram that into a day where you're also productive as a worker and productive as, um, I mean, as I'm, I'm sure um, you, um, I, I don't yet have the privilege or honor of being a father, but you, uh, you're a busy man these days. So it's, um, it's, it's hard to kind of, I mean, oh, let me turn this around. How do you find kind of the uh, inspiration to, to write and to create when you don't have enough time to play, as it were? Yeah, well, it's a good question. For I mean, for me personally, having the kid really has just forced me to take all this stuff more seriously because, you know, when you're young and when you don't have kids yet, you can kind of always tell yourself, like, I'll do it later because you you, you have so much time, right? And you can see, you know, um, you feel as if you can do many things in your life uh, when you're young and when you have a lot of time and you don't have a, a ton of, you know, oppressive responsibilities on a day-to-day -day basis. You, you, oh, you can always tell yourself, I'll do that later. There's plenty of time because in, in a way there is. Uh, once you have kids and and your life gets busier and and more filled with responsibilities, you have this really kind of scary, uh, pretty difficult kind of reckoning where you're like, oh, I actually don't have that much time left in my life. There, there's just not going to be that much free time. There's not going to be that much leisure. And so all suddenly the things you thought you would tell yourself like, oh, I'll, I'll do it later. I'll do it later. Um, you suddenly realize oh, my later is way smaller than I uh, expected, or it's way, it's suddenly way smaller than I bargained for. And you're just kind of, you're really confronted with your finitude and, 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 and your mortality and just the sheer smallness of how, how much you're really going to be able to do moving forward. Uh, and, uh, but of course, you know, if, uh, if you're in your thirties or even, even forties, you know, there's still plenty of time if you get serious about how you use your time and, and, and it suddenly kind of starts to sink in. Okay. I can still do great things. I still have plenty of time ahead of me, but only if I'm very thoughtful about what I do at that time, you have to become brutally thoughtful about what you're going to do at that time. And to be, you know, good at anything, let alone be great at anything. You pretty much have to focus on, on that one thing. And so that's for me kind of like what, uh, is got what, what I've learned in the past year since I had a baby. Um, and it's really been one of the major kind of ingredients and in like this kind of refinement of, of the other life brand and my whole project and what exactly I'm doing, my kind of longer term plan for it all has really refined by, by this, because I'm like, okay, I only have so much time left. And if I want to be great at anything, I have to just do that one thing. And, and that's all, that's all you're really, you know, that's all you can be allowed to do. I saw, so I like, I, I took desperate measures, dude. Like I sold my TV. We, we now have no TV in the house, things like that, because it's just like, you know, you know, yeah. I, 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 I left academia to, to become something great on my own terms to figure out a new way to do it. And if I have any chance of actually, you know, becoming a truly great writer that, that makes a dent in the culture in the long term, I need to basically do nothing else because th there's no time to do anything else. And so if I'm not serious about doing, if I'm not really serious about every day, I'm reading only the greatest works and every day I'm writing only at the highest, you know, um, the high, the highest level of my ability, uh, with dedicated, deliberate practice in both of these things every day. If, if I do that, you know, two or three hours every single day, like before the kid wakes up and things like that, 
if I do that, then I have an absolute shot at becoming truly great at this one thing and making a dent. But anything less than that, if I don't do that, if I'm not focused on only the greatest works and doing the highest work I'm capable of, if I'm not doing that every single day for at least a couple hours, my probability of being great is zero. It's it's pretty mm -hmm. much that simple. And so it's like, if you do that, you have a shot at being great. And, and frankly, if you can do it consistently, you probably have a decent probability of cracking into you know, the, the upper echelons of at least like something meaningful. I'm not saying, I'm not saying anyone, you know, no one can guarantee you that you're going to be good or that you're going to be great or anything like that. It's, it's all, that's yeah. up to God, frankly. It's like, that's not even for you to think too much about or worry too much about. Um, but what, what I can say is that if you're reading and writing, if you're reading the great works and you're writing as authentically and honestly as you can every day for a couple hours, even just two hours, one hour reading, one hour writing, but you're doing that every single day, and you're even if you're as old as 40 or, you know, whatever, um, if you're really doing that every day, I can I would bet money that in 20 years you're going to leave. You're going to actually produce a body of work that is in some sense, just objectively, statistically, you are going to produce an exceptional body of work for the simple reason that almost no one can do that. Almost no one can put in that time that consistently. And so if you can simply do that, you're almost guaranteed to be in like the 90th percentile of of lifetime writers, you're almost guaranteed objectively, right? I'm not saying it's going to be good. No one can promise that or that, you know, it, maybe it's not going to be great. Maybe it's not going to be that meaningful, but the bar is so low that getting into the 90th percentile is actually not that hard. You know, the greats are like the 99.9%, you know, that's the hard thing. And no one can guarantee you that I'm not, I'm not, I would never so naively tell anyone that, um, you know, that, that's something that you're, you're guaranteed by just putting in the work or the time, but you are kind of guaranteed to get to the 90th percentile simply by focus, brutal focus and consistency. Um, and so, um, yeah, that's, that's like what I think about now. And that's, what's really been driven home to me since I had the baby. It was kind of like, I either want to be a great writer or I don't. And if you do, and I do, um, you pretty much have to be as insane as possible in reducing everything else and, and really like making that the priority. Give a busy man a project, as they say. I, um, yeah, I, I note in like uh, a lot of the GCs that I'm in, the people who like wake up and uh, and GM at, at you know at like four thirty or five. I, you know, I, I know that they're waking up to take care of their children, but um, you know, regardless, I'm waking up at seven thirty eight, and I'm thinking, you know, okay, you, you know, you you did some additional work taking care of children, but you probably, you know, spent more time just being awake and doing stuff than I did. <laughs> so right. I can see how having, you know, a family actually, you know, gets you on that schedule that you, you know, you need to be on to produce the work that you were meant to produce. Yeah. It forces you to choose. It forces you to realize like, Oh, okay. My, my time to do what I believe in doing is limited now. So you suddenly realize like, if I'm going to be, if I'm going to even have a chance of being great at anything, it's probably just going to be one thing. I probably have to pick that one thing and I have to just uh, be, be brutally consistent about it. It's, it's like your only chance really. Um, and, and your sense of the, that, that your sense of those limits and that finitude just gets really strong when you have, have a kid. It's sad. Honestly, it's, it's a hard, it's hard. It, it is sad. It is like you're, your, your future, the walls are closing in and uh, it's no joke in a way. Um, people don't like when I talk like that because it sounds, you know, down on family or whatever. I'm not down on family at all. I no, love no, my family. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a very welcome and powerful kind of pressure enforcing function, but, but the walls close in, 
and, and they really do. With that in mind, I don't want to keep you too long, but um, are, is there anything you, you want to discuss about the future of other life projects you want to, you know, talk about plug, you know, this, this is obviously a forum for you. No, no, nothing about my own self that I want to plug, but I, I, I'm increasingly just obsessed with this message that I want to share with everyone, which is just read the great books, drop out of society, drop out of the discourse, do not even know who the popular internet celebrity is right now, read the great books, and that's it, and write about them on whatever you're learning from them, whatever you're thinking about them, whatever thoughts or observations they inspire, feelings they inspire, uh, read the great, drop out of society read the great books and just try to write something true every single day. And if you do that, you very quickly, like in four weeks or less, you will enter in your, your, your life will change. Your, 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 your general uh, perspective will refine to a, to a palpable degree, your uh, confidence and your kind of just general calmness, your ability to focus and reflect on everything suddenly becomes much stronger. Uh, your kind of ability to show up in conversations, to be an interesting uh, person in in social conversations and showing, you you know, going to parties, going to social functions, everything changes for the better. Everything improves. And it is literally the closest I've ever, it's the, it's the closest thing I've ever discovered in my life that is a kind of like all purpose, general mind, soul improver that just lifts everything up essentially. And, um, and, and I think especially if you feel called to be a writer or to, to to pursue creative work, just drop out of society, immerse yourself in only the greatest works that are germane to your your discipline or your domain, and just just submerge yourself in the greats of the past and participate in their conversation. You know, every day, write something true related to, to that world, participate in the great conversation that's come before you and ignore everything else because the noise out there is tremendous. The noise is, there's so much noise and it is intoxicating. It is so enticing. It is so fun and exciting and satisfying on in the short term to get in some Twitter dispute and to get retweeted by some micro famous celebrity. <laughs> and this stuff is so fun and it is so intoxicating that for most of the people you know in your life, most of them are going to get sucked up into that vortex and they're never going to say anything profound or original. Don't be that person. Just drop out of that, submerge yourself in the greats and try to write something true every day. And uh, I think that this is like the one of the single most reliable heuristics or, you know, frameworks for, you know, finding a, for living a truly virtuous and thoughtful and sophisticated life that uh, will enable you to do the more profound and original things that, that you want to do. This is, this is my new, this is my talking point. Now, this is like my, my core belief that I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with. So I just wanted to leave you with a reiteration of that. Absolutely. Listen to Justin reading great books and, you know, taking the time to actually think about this stuff. That is, you know, something that is going to serve you very well certainly served me well in, um, you know, engaging with other life, engaging with, you know, uh, Justin's, you know, project and, you know, frankly, New Right, as, you know, we discussed would not be here today if I didn't, you know, connect with Matt through Indie Thinkers. So to bring it home, um, you know, again, 
Thank you for the work you're doing, Justin. Thanks a lot for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, people can follow the newsletter at just otherlife.co, otherlife.co. That's kind of the main the main centerpiece of, of everything I'm doing if people want to stay, stay in touch. And you can reply to those emails if you want to hit me up about anything. I'm always happy to talk with people. I reply to every email. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate what you're doing, Dan. I appreciate you and Matt. And uh, just keep up the good work. Thank you. Great to have you on. Thanks, man. Appreciate it.